So in my humble opinion, one of Christianity's biggest flaws has been our practical demand that non-Christians act like Christians. So just think about that for a second. What I mean is that um, when a non-Christian entity does non-Christian things, we always act really surprised by that. <laughs> and, and, and in many cases, an entity, a non-Christian entity does a non-Christian thing, and then we as Christians go, oh, that's terrible. How can you do that? And then we want to ban them. Or maybe, maybe I'll make some people upset this morning. Maybe the idea of canceling began in the church. Because we look at non-Christian entities that do non-Christian things, and we go, well, I'm not going to shop there anymore. I'm not going to look at their stuff. I'm not going to participate in their things because they're not doing the things that I think they ought to. And, and I understand that in many of those cases, what Christian people are fighting against is, is maybe what they see as this erosion of uh, the moral fabric of our country or something. But then I have to go back and think, okay, but what basis or standard of morals are we basing that on? And, and it's clearly our Judeo-Christian idea of how things ought to be. Um, let's take, for instance, this morning, uh, our own community. You've probably heard the news over the last um, month or so uh, about a club on South Main that is going to host a drag queen show in June. And that, that show is sponsored by, in part at least, by um, a, a wing of the city government called Experience El Dorado. And, and there's probably people, I mean, l let me just be honest for a second. I have worn a dress. Let, let me tell you, I wore the crap out of that dress. It was very, it was very quick, but um, years ago at the last church I pastored, somebody had the brilliant idea that if the VBS kids one year um, in the week of VBS raised a certain dollar amount, the preacher would wear a dress on Sunday morning. No, that was a one-time uh, one deal. Uh, and so I, the, the morning service, and we had all these parents of these VBS kids in, and I went into a room off to the side and put this ridiculous dress on, and then I ran across the stage to the other side and changed um, really, really quickly. Uh, but I was looking at the event um, page for this show, and... And like, there, there are people who are saying, well, this is just for fun. This is just a way to express yourself. Um, but when you look at the page, it, it, it makes it very clear that this is a pride event. This has, as you might imagine, here in El Dorado, this is called, you know, part of the Bible Belt in this country. Uh, and so this has caused quite a stir in the community and has presented a, a larger, a rather large, like backlash against um, the city administration and the city commission. 
Um, I watched a few minutes of the last uh, city commission meeting they put online, and you know there was just kind of one person after the next coming up expressing their concern and their displeasure and their irritation that uh, that money from the city was being used to support something like this. But let me um, make sure we all get this. El Dorado is not a Christian community. It is a community in which there are Christians. So um, the, we shouldn't be surprised. Like we shouldn't expect the city to run as though it's a church. It's not a, a church. Now I'm very thankful that the city commission meetings are opened each time with prayer. And I've had the opportunity to do that many times. I'm very thankful that every year if you drive up Main Street to the city administration building, there's a nativity on the corner of their lot. I am really excited about that. I'm glad for that, but I recognize that El Dorado is not a Christian city. The individuals in our town who are not followers of Jesus don't have to follow Jesus. They shouldn't be condemned for living their lives in the way that they choose any more than they should condemn us for living life the way we choose, right? I mean, that's part of this thing. And yet we get upset as Christians that people who are not Christians complain about the way we live and the things we do and the way we try to direct the national whatever and get things Christian-y. Um, but we do the same thing. And we complain about non-Christians doing non-Christian things. Um, I, I want to look at how Jesus himself explains this right before he was crucified. It comes from John. He's speaking to his disciples, and, and, and it's, it, this is part of what's called the high priestly prayer. So this is the night before Jesus is betrayed, it's the same night, but a little, a few hours before he's betrayed, and he's praying for his followers, for the disciples. And so he's talking to God about them. He says, I have given them your word, God, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, Jesus makes it clear that there's a distinction here between the world and people of the word, followers of his. But instead of trying to escape the world, Jesus says that um, he's actually prepared us through the word and then is sending us into the world. So Jesus doesn't say, look, get, like God, rescue them, get them out of the world. He says, no, they're going into the world and so protect them. Um, th there is a, um, there's this idea, maybe you've seen the bumper sticker. If you've been around churchy people very long, you've heard them say, uh, usually something comes up about the, the lostness of the world or some crazy thing that's going on, and some Christian says, well, we're not, we're not of this world. 
Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, the uh, N-O-T-W, not of this world bumper sticker that's real popular right now. You see that in a lot of, I think you can buy it at Walmart, actually, if you uh, go down there. And, and, but think about the way that we use that word or that phrase in just practical real life terms. The way that we kind of use that is, is like this. Well, um, we as Christians, like, we're just stuck here in this, in this crummy, God-forsaken world. And the best thing that we can do is just try and scratch and claw to, like, get up and, and, and climb out of this pit of a hole that is the world. And, and one day, if we climb high enough and we get far enough, that, that we'll be able to get out of this world and we'll be able to get into heaven. And that, it's really the way that we use that, that phrase. Um, I think the other way is we go we, we somehow like, well, I'm above all this garbage that's going on in the world. You know, I've climbed up high enough that I don't have to be bothered by all of this world stuff. And let me just tell you, both of those ideas are ridiculous and they are not what Jesus is talking about when he says what our mission is, when he talks about why we're here in the world. Um, Jesus wasn't trying to avoid the world. Look, he gave up heaven to come here. Jesus isn't trying to get out of the world. He wants us, he wants the word to get into the world. And so Jesus in his life and ministry and the mission that he gave his disciples wasn't to just like, hey, look, just work really hard and maybe someday you'll make it and you'll get out of this world and you'll get to go to heaven. No, Jesus was trying to present a viable alternative to the ways of the world. The way that Jesus lived his life was to show other people that you don't have to live like the world. You can follow the ways of God. You can live according to the word of God, and, and it's going to be different than the way that the world lives. And so um, let me break it down this way. We are a people captured by culture. Do you ever, you, do you feel that way? I, I feel that way a lot. And, and because we're a people captured by culture, I think there's a couple of primary ways that we deal with this, that as, as Christians, we try and handle this capturing of the culture. And, and we're bombarded with this all the time, right? It, it, you know, if you've come to real life very long, you know that I, years ago, like turned off the news. I, I don't, listen, I'm gonna shock some of you here this morning. I don't even watch Fox News. Uh, I'm just going to tell you, they're all bad. The, the way that a 24-hour news cycle exists is by whipping everybody who watches it up to an angry froth all the, every day. There's horrible stuff because the only way you and I are going to keep watching their garbage is if they make us mad enough to have to keep looking at it and... But, and you notice everything they do is about how my side is good and the other side is bad. And you should give my side more money and you should fight everybody on that side. That's the way the news works and the media works in this, uh, in this culture that we 
that we in. So we really are captured by this. Like we can't get out of it. We can't. There have been groups who've tried. Uh, talk to David Koresh about how well that went. Um, people have tried. It just doesn't work. And so we really have two primary ways of trying to deal with this um, captivity that we feel. One of those ways is to simply give into it. And so a lot of people just go, okay, th this is uh, culture. I'm captured by culture. I'm just going to live like everybody else. I'm just going to resign myself to whatever the culture says is okay, and then it's going to be okay to me. It says okay to the culture. It's okay uh, for me. Whatever the culture cancels, I'm going to cancel, and I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm just going to fit in. I'm, it, I'm just going to be a part of everything that's happening. That's one way to handle it. A lot of people have chosen to uh, live their lives that way. I think the other way um, primarily that people handle this is that they become, well, let's just call them culture warriors. Uh, people, individuals, groups that fight against the culture. Like they act like they're in a physical war that must be won at all costs. And you can see this primarily because these culture warriors um, really have no problem breaking their own rules in the line of combat. So they'll claim the moral high ground and say, we're better because of whatever. And a lot of times it's Christianese, right? Like I am better than the culture because I follow God and I do what God says. Um, that's what the individual who shot George Tiller thought. And so they break their own rules to win the war, like the end justifies the means is kind of how they think about that. Now, personally, I believe that as followers of Jesus, we cannot simply go along with the culture. In fact, God's word tells us don't, don't be conformed to the culture of this world, but be transformed by the word of God. So I don't think we can just go along with culture but I also don't believe that a heavy-handed culture warrior is doing the kingdom of God any good either. And so I don't really feel like either one of those options are, are good or viable options. One of the reasons the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, um, has never been conquered, even though they've often been captured, is because of their stubborn refusal to either go along with the culture that has captured them or to fight against it to the bitter end. The, the Jewish people really don't do either of those uh, things. Like whatever culture they find themselves in, rather than combating that culture or condemning that culture, they just follow God. And, and, they, and, and what the ends up happening is that the Jewish people end up contrasting the culture that they live in. And so they're not combating everybody and making every, forcing everybody to follow them. Um, and, and, and they're not just giving into it. They're just, they're like, okay, so we're here and we're going to keep following God the way we believe God wants us to follow him. And people can join in with that or they can't, but it doesn't matter. We're going to still be Jews and we're going to live this way no matter where we're at. And I think one of the greatest examples of, of this that we see in Scripture um, is in the stories of how the Jews live during their capture and exile in the nation of Babylon. 
You can read about this time period in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Esther takes place during this time when the Jews are in Babylon. Um, also, uh, Daniel, you remember the story of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and Ezekiel. And so in this series, A New Heart, we're going to kind of camp in the book of Ezekiel, uh, and it's contemporary with these other, with Daniel and with Esther, and we're going to Look at the ways and the whys for our need of a new heart. And if we're going to look more like Jesus, the Bible says we need a, a new heart. In fact, the Old Testament says God needs to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And so in this series, we're going to look at, at, at why that needs to happen and the ways in which God brings it about. So we're going to jump into Ezekiel really quick, but first let's take a second out to pray. God, we live in a difficult time, and that's not unique to us. Every generation of people for as long as people have existed have lived in a difficult time. In fact, I would argue based on what we find written in the Old Testament that there have been lots of times throughout history that we're way, way worse than right now. And yet every generation feels that, that their culture, their situation, their time period, their era is the worst. And so we wanna pray like Jesus did for his disciples, for us. We wanna join him in that prayer and, and just say, God, we want to be used by you and we realize that we have been sent into a culture that is often at odds with your word and your ways. And so would you give us the ability um, not to just give in to that and not to pretend like we're better than everybody else and they need to change, but that we would just concentrate ourselves on following you, on looking more like your son Jesus um, and thereby offer a contrast like the Jews did to the culture of, of the day. And so God, um, just be with us and, and, and help us. As, as Jesus prayed, we're in the culture, but would you keep us from the evil one? And, and so God, help us to live our lives for you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at uh, Ezekiel. This is uh, verse 3 and 4 of Ezekiel chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Now, we'll explain that a little more in a second. But what happens between verse 3 and verse 4 is Ezekiel's kind of setting the stage. This is what's happening. He's talking in the third person. And, and then in verse 4, he switches and he's like, here's what I saw. Now, the city of Jerusalem had been conquered and captured by Babylon. And the first deportation of Jewish people from Jerusalem to Babylon happened in about 605 B.C., so 605 years before Jesus came. 
That first conquest by Nebuchadnezzar, who was then king of Babylon, he hauled off all of the prominent people uh, of, the, of, of Jerusalem or of the Israel, uh, Israelite, uh, Ju- Judah, it was called at that point, hauled off all of the prominent people from the city. So um, the royals, basically, anybody who had position or standing or importance within the city, they took to Babylon. This was a, a normal practice that happened um, all, all the time. Uh, along with uh, Daniel, who was a royal, went uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, the store, the fiery furnace from the VBS stories that maybe you heard when you were a kid. And so those guys are among the first who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. About eight years later, Ezekiel's writing, and he has now been taken in a second wave uh, back to Babylon. So we know that Daniel was a prince and that Ezekiel was a priest. We know from the stories that Daniel lived essentially in the palace and Ezekiel was among the people. Both of them followed God. Neither of them caved to the culture, but they contrasted the culture of Babylon in very, very different ways. I want to notice uh, first, though, a couple things in um, verse 3. Look at how specific the writing is about the setting there where God finds Ezekiel. We're told that that he's a priest, so he's from the priestly line of, of Aaron. If he were back in Jerusalem, he'd be serving in the temple. We're told also that he's the son of this guy named Boozy or something like that. Uh, and, and so like his family line, we're given that. He's now in the land of the Chaldeans. So the Babylonians are called the Chaldeans. Uh, so he's not in Jerusalem. He is far away. And he's sitting by the Kibar Canal. Um, so it would have been a... Would have been a canal um, that ran close to the Jewish settlement camp uh, outside of Babylon. And it's in this specific location that the Lord finds Ezekiel. And the author kind of goes out of his way to be very specific about the location of Ezekiel to make sure that we understand as the readers that Zeke is not in Jerusalem. This is not the same place. This is a completely different situation, completely different um, place. And the reason that's important um, is that we got to understand what the Jews were facing in their captivity in Babylon. The, The Jews believed that God existed somewhat physically with the Ark of the Covenant, So the ark was this wooden box that God told Moses to build, and it was overlaid with gold and had some cherubim angels on the tops, and their wings touched, and these long poles that that came in there. And and the presence of God dwelt uh, above the mercy seat, so above the top of this box between the wings of the angels. This is where the physical presence of God dwelt. So there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that talks about this, and we get this idea, God is very protective of his space because this is holy. So it went in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then in the temple. The only person to see it really was the high priest as he entered the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for all of the people. But this 
um, this box, this ark, was representative of the very presence of God to the people. And so the further you got away from the temple or the presence of God there, the further you were away from God. That's what the people believed. And so Babylon was about as far away as any Jew could fathom being away from the presence of God. In fact, if they believed in a flat earth about that time, Babylon would have been teetering on the edge. That's how far they felt they were away from from God. So this was not just for the Jewish people. This was not just like a people captured by this new culture in Babylon. They were a people removed from their creator. That's how they felt. This was a very, very difficult situation for them. Um, they had no idea, really, if God could even get to them. This is kind of how they, the idea worked back then, the idea of um, worshiping other gods and how it worked, and it was a whole big thing. But, but they weren't even sure that God could find them in Babylon. That's how far they felt like they were away from the presence of, of God. And, and so it wasn't just um, that they had been captured by Babylon, they felt like if God allowed us to be captured by this foreign godless nation, maybe he doesn't even care about us. And so they were going through the motions to the best of their ability to follow God, but they weren't even really sure if he cared about what was going on. And they looked at the situation, they're like, well, he allowed us to be captured and hauled off far away from his presence. Maybe he doesn't like us anymore. And so the author makes it clear with verse 4 that not only does God know exactly where his people are, but he has come to them even though they can't get to him. That's what begins to happen in the rest of chapter 1 as Ezekiel begins to explain this vision that he sees. We started to read it in verse 4 of this fire and lightning and, and cloud and these creatures and all of this stuff. What Ezekiel is picturing is the chariot of God. Um, and so if, if you're an ancient person, you would understand that the king rode a special chariot was different from everybody else. And so what Ezekiel's trying to explain is what the chariot of God looked like to him as he sat there uh, at the Kibar Canal. Um, and so uh, maybe this idea of, of God's presence coming to Babylon was a little bit of foreshadowing of, of Jesus. Like, if you can't get to me, I'm going to come to you. I don't know. Uh, but here's the deal. God reveals himself to who he wants, when he wants, where he wants. We can't force that as, um, as his followers. We can't make it up. Our role is to facilitate what God is doing um, in a physical way. And so for many years, Ezekiel lived in Jerusalem, but there's no indication that God visited him there. He only reveals himself when Zeke is far away in this other land and this completely different culture. 
And so the challenge for people who are captured by culture, um, who either uh, simply give into it or who want to fight it, is that you and I can't force God to reveal himself to someone or to ourselves. We can't force that. Can't force somebody to recognize God and we can't force God to reveal himself to anyone. Um, so the way that you experience God isn't necessarily, oh wait, I, I skipped, sorry. I don't have no idea where I'm at. Oh, there we are. Uh, okay, so God is the revealer. God's the one that reveals himself. We are the ones who respond um, we respond to that. And God is going to choose who and when and where to reveal himself, both to non-Christians and to Christians as well. And so our role as people of the word and not the world is to be ready to react whenever God is ready to reveal himself. So the word of the Lord, or we could say it like this, the presence of God found Ezekiel in a foreign land, in a strange area at an odd time. And Ezekiel didn't expect it. Like he is completely shocked when he sees this chariot of God approaching him. Like he's as surprised as anyone about what's going on. First, he's surprised that God is not in Jerusalem. He's like, like what are you doing here? You're supposed to be back there. Your place is in the temple with the ark. So he's freaked out um, about that. Um, but the other thing that's freaking him out is God is now, his presence is now in a place where there are unholy people. Babylon was an unholy nation. And so Ezekiel's like, like, why, why are you here? What's going on? This doesn't make any sense to me. But nonetheless, God finds Ezekiel there in Babylon by the Kibar Canal. Now, there's um, something else we learn about God in, um, in this story. We learn that God is always working. He's always looking for hearts that are open to him. And hearts are going to be open to him at different times and different places and for different for different reasons whether it's a uh, whether it's a person who is is a follower of Jesus a, a Christian a person of the word or it's a person of the world god is always working in the lives of people he's always organizing circumstances he's always bringing situations and sometimes we we get to see this a little bit and and you hear a story of maybe who's somebody who just feels the need to call somebody up or to make a statement to somebody in the store and we learn later like that person thought they were like nobody cared about them they were going to go home and end their life and there's a there's a, a word or a phrase or somebody says something to them and God gets a hold of them in that moment God is always working and different things may cause our hearts to be more open to God or more close to God at different times, but God is always working to reveal himself to the right person at the right time in the right place. And while God often reveals himself to people in um, similar ways, like the cloud, the fire, the lightning that Ezekiel saw with the chariot of, of God, it's never the same experience. 
Not everybody has the same experience to follow God. And one of the things I, I see in the Christian community is that we have this idea that the way God revealed himself to me has to be the way God reveals himself to you. And if God doesn't reveal himself to you the way he did to me, well, then maybe your experience isn't as good as mine. It's not the same. It, it may not be as as good. And, and so the way you experience God may not be, in fact, probably won't be the way others experience him. And whatever way you experience God is not the only way that a person experiences God. And so the way that God reveals himself, there, there are different kinds of, of ways. Um, and we've got to be ready always for God to reveal himself no matter what's going on. So often God reveals himself to his own followers through correction. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're living your life for him, God is often going to reveal himself to you through correction. So either the Holy Spirit is doing that in your life or somebody else comes along and says, hey, what about this issue? And, and we feel that correction and we open ourselves up, hopefully, humbly, to what God is um, is doing. People of the world often experience God's revelation through conviction. Again, typically that's initiated by the Holy Spirit, but it might be a comment or a word or a song or a Bible verse or something that brings that conviction. And they think, maybe I'm not living right, maybe there's something more, and it just is different for each and every person. However, when God chooses to reveal himself to somebody else outside of the faith through a Christian person, almost always it's through contrast. The way that a Christian person lives. And so when you walk in God's ways, or we could say when you walk according to God's word, we offer the world a viable contrast to the way they're currently living. A way of life that's not focused on self, but it's focused on self-sacrifice. So um, when your family or your friends or your coworkers see you face a challenging circumstance with faith instead of fear, then you're contrasting culture by the way that you live. When you choose to stand up for the weak or for the marginalized, instead of ignoring their situation, you offer a contrast to the culture. When you give generously, when you serve humbly, when you love unconditionally, without expecting to get a bunch of stuff in return, well, you offer a contrast to the culture. As followers of Jesus, we don't combat culture we don't combat the culture through correction or conviction. We combat culture through contrast. We offer people an alternative way to live life. Living for others instead of self, following God instead of the group. And so in my opinion, the best conversion method is the life of contrast. The best conversion plan is to contrast the popular. And, and look, I'm, I know Christians who will tell you that if you're really a Christian, you will go stand on a street corner somewhere and get up on a box or a milk crate and you'll preach and you'll tell everybody they're going to hell if they don't listen to you or follow God. And I will just tell you that the number of people who've been converted in that way is very small vast majority of people don't come to Christ that way. 
they do come to Jesus when they see Jesus' people living like Jesus and offering a viable contrast to the world. And so getting a new heart, it doesn't happen on accident. When it does happen, you can bet that God has been working behind the scenes in ways that the rest of us weren't even aware of. And so we've got to be ready to follow God's lead whenever that comes. So I want you to think about this in, in closing. There's just a few things to get the wheels turning a little bit as you move through this week. When Jesus lived on the earth, he primarily condemned the clergy, not the commoner. Jesus primarily associated with the sinner, not the saint. Jesus primarily accepted the outcast, not the orthodox, not the one who was doing everything right. Jesus primarily met the needs of the hurting and the hopeless and the hungry, not those of the honorable and the holy. And so our best option as followers of Jesus to change the culture in which we're held captive is to present the best contrast to that way of life. And the way that we do that is by looking more like Jesus every day. And to do that, we need a new heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we do need a new heart. Whether, whether we're brand new to faith or we've been following you for a long time, or maybe somebody's here today who never committed their lives to you, each and every one of us need a new heart. We need a heart that's less focused on us and more focused on others. We need a heart that's open to people who are different from us. We need a heart that, like Jesus, that, that moves us to, to reach out. And when we reach out to others, your word tells us that we're really reaching up to you. And so God, I, I pray that you would begin to do a work in each of us to change our hearts so that they look more like your son, Jesus. So that we then in our lives, in our daily lives, and as we interact with the culture around us, that we look more like Jesus in the way that we speak to people, in the things that we do, and, and God, even the things that we think about and, and spend our time on, would you give us a new heart that begins to change those things so that we look more like Jesus? And as you do that, we'll offer a viable option to the culture and people will come and say, I don't know what you've got, but I need it. And we'll see the culture changed not because we're correcting people, not because we're condemning people, but because we're offering a way to live that contrasts with the way the world lives. And they'll see you in us. Would you help us to live like that, Father? In Jesus' name, amen.